This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Janet Ivanovich, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. This is kind of like a dream moment for me. I think I have known you all my life. Well, if I haven't known you, I've known Stephanie for sure. Well, Stephanie and I share a lot of things, so we're all in the family. We're all in the same family. You are indeed. Janet is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 42 novels, including the Stephanie Plum series and the Recovery Agent series. She's here to talk about her latest book, Going Rogue. It is the 29th Stephanie Plum thriller. It's full of surprises, thrills and humour, revealing a new side of Stephanie. I read somewhere that there was 200 million copies of your books out there. Would that be right? Um, could be. I don't know. I haven't counted them all, but that's what they tell me. There's a, it's a lot. Okay. It's um, Usually what I say is it's a lot. It's a big number. I, I don't know. Well, really, after 100 million, who's counting, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to talk about how it all started and where it all started and how is it that you came to be a writer? Go right back. Yeah. Well, I, I started out, I was always the kid that could draw. I just like making things. And I went to, I was an art student in college, got my bachelor's degree in fine arts, um, was a painter, and then got married, had a couple kids. And painting just wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it, you know, when I could. The reality is I was breaking out from the pigment. <laughs> I was, it wasn't, it wasn't my thing. I was, it was always kind of a I liked drawing when I was a kid. When I got into college and I started seriously making art, it became kind of a struggle for me. And what I finally realized is that it wasn't so much the drawing that I enjoyed when I was a kid. It was that I was always telling myself stories mm. about the things that I was drawing. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that maybe I was a storyteller. Mm. And so I thought, you know, it was like one of those, you know, lightning bolt moments. And so I thought, okay, since since the art is getting to be a struggle for me and my um, my hands are like this big, red, blotchy, peeling mess, um, I'm going to try writing a book. And so... Um, Did you think back then I'm a storyteller? Did, was that a conscious thought or you just thought, no, let me, let me try something else? Yeah, it, it was. It, um, and I think it was, you know, partially because of my kids. Yeah. And I, what I realized is that I was always telling stories. Mm. You know, I was telling stories to my kids when I was doing a painting or a sketch. It, I was like Grandma Moses, you know, there was a story attached to it. And it, it occurred to me that this was what I enjoyed was the story part. So I thought, 
I'm going to put the brushes aside and I'm going to try writing books. And so 10 years later, I was a slow learner. I did. I didn't. This was, I was not an overnight success, but I had no <laughs> skills and I didn't know any writers. And so, um, and I was writing very bizarre things. Uh, uh-huh. who, were you, who were you reading? Were you reading anyone at the time thinking maybe I want to, were you inspired by, you know, a story on television or a story in the paper or books? Well, I was. When I first started writing, um, I was a product of the art department and the art department said, you don't do it for other people. You do it for yourself and you have to be unique. And, you know, and it was all pretty bizarre in, in the college art department. And so I was writing about these strange things, you know, like a woman who grew up in a fairy forest in Ireland and migrated to America and lived with a bird in a, you know, we don't even want to go into this, but anyway, I never, I never sold any of that. And so after about surprise. 10 years, <laughs> yes, after about 10 years of having no surprise, no success, I started, I, I realized that it wasn't for me. I, I was, I don't write for myself. I don't paint for myself. It's about communication. It's about creating family. And by writing all of these things that were never published and were just so strange, it wasn't satisfying to me. That wasn't where I wanted to go. And so I took a look at what I was actually reading and I was reading romance novels. You know, I was a young wife and a mother and I was reading romance novels. And so I decided that that's what I was going to try. And that was how I finally had success is in writing the little um, short romance novels. And I did 10 of those. I sold my first one for a very small amount of money, but I thought it was huge. You know, mm-hmm. um, we were struggling. We were a young family struggling with money. My husband, you know, has a college education and a good job, but we were still a single income family. Mm-hmm. And, and so... So I was just, you know, flushed with this big success. Uh, I was working as a part-timer. I want to know how you got your first book published. I I think I read somewhere that the advance was $2,000. It was. It was $2,000. It felt like a million to me. It was big money, you know, it was huge. And um, How did you do that, though? I mean, because that's another process, is getting published. This this was back, you know, 100 years ago when mm. you could send um, these little romances directly into the publisher. Right. Uh, now, you can't do that any longer. You have to have an agent. It's so hard to get published. I mean, you can go to someplace like Amazon and put your stuff out there, but that doesn't often lead to success, doesn't get you really an, a living wage, you know. So, but anyway, I I was sending, I was sending to everybody. I sent to every agent in New York. I sent to every editor, every publisher. And that would have been hard copy. Probably. Yes, yes, because yeah. it was no internet. So I was sending out big boxes of pages. Yeah. And I was getting all of these rejections back. I mean, I got a rejection back from some woman who wrote it on a bar napkin in lipstick. I mean, that was wow. Yeah, that was I wish I had saved them. I didn't. Yeah, I, wow. I at some point I took them all outside, sat on the curb sobbing and burned all those rejection letters and went to work um as a temp in an office and I was working for I don't know, I think maybe 4 or 5 months 
And finally, you know, the word came through that I, I sold a book that, that my, I was at the skating rink with my daughter um, after school. Uh, she was taking skating lessons and my husband and my son came and they put their arms around me and they said, your editor just called. Yeah. And I mean, all of these years later, when I say this, I actually, I, I get choked. It was, it was like, um, you know, my whole life started again. I mean, it was because I had been, I was just miserable not writing. Mm -hmm. I, I found out that I love to write and, and it was the process, you know, it wasn't just the success of it, but it was the process, this business about getting up in the morning and going into this world that you've created and, and having the privilege of, you know, walking through it. And as a full-time writer, being able to spend your day doing this. And I have to be honest, okay, in the morning, it's like this. Okay, for like maybe three hours, I actually have thoughts in my head and, and I'm having a pretty good time. You know, I've got my dog with me. I've got a cup of coffee and then I run out of ideas and then it's just excruciating. And then by about four o'clock, somebody raps on the door and throws a bag of Cheetos in at me, you know, <laughs> yeah. brings a glass of wine. She might need food now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not just any food. It yeah. has to be horrible junk food. It has to be yeah. all salty and crunchy. And um, I like so the wine bit as well. Yes. And the wine, yeah. the wine is very important. Yeah. I am brilliant. You give me a bag of Cheetos and a glass of wine. I am so frigging funny. I am just brilliant. I can write scenes. <laughs> Of course, it doesn't last because by the second glass of wine, I fall asleep and I'm done, you know. But yeah. Well, that's why you don't get it till later on. <laughs> <laughs> now, I I read somewhere also in my, in my research notes that you were the, is this right? Were you the first person in your family to go to college? I was, yeah. Oh, talk to um, me my about grandparents, that. My grandparents um, came over as indentured servants. From? Um, they, they, were, they were Danish. Uh, they came over from Denmark. Um, they came over in the hold of a ship. They were indentured. My, both of my grandmothers were domestics. Um, I think they they worked for something like seven years to work off their indenture. My uh, one grandfather was a wheelwright in Denmark, and he became a house painter um, in this country. My other grandfather was a coppersmith. Uh, he went to work in a man's factory. And then my parents were the first to graduate from high school. Um, they could read and write. Mm -hmm. And I was the first to graduate from, from college. And we didn't have a lot of money. My dad worked in a factory and my mom was a homemaker. I, I was a commuting student at college. I lived at home and I went into, it was a state school that I went to. I had a scholarship. So um, I was able to, you know, get a college education. I was an art student. And so that meant, you know, um, art supplies, which, of course, I didn't have any money for. So um, I scrimped and scraped and got art supplies and did a little shoplifting every now and then when I mm -hmm. uh, only for food. I, I I never took anything unless I was really only hungry. what you needed. <laughs> and then, yes, I went to the supermarket and I might I might have put an orange in my pocket. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. They were the days, right, wasn't it? You know, when people were. Uh, I mean, I guess there's poverty. All no, around honestly, the, no, no, these are the days. Yeah, these are. Okay. These are the, 
I wonder what your parents, being immigrants, would have thought of the idea of you being a writer. How alien is that to somebody who's trying to survive? Yeah, well, it was even worse than that because I yeah. was, um, I was strange. You know, I was, I was an odd kid. I was always in, you know, my own fantasy world. I mean, for years, I pretended I was a horse and I would go galloping around, <laughs> um, you know, making horse sounds, you know, that kind of thing. And then sometimes I was a reindeer. No, I don't know. So, yeah. And, um, you know, or I would or I would be an opera singer. I would have to go to the store for my mom and I'd be walking down the street, you know, pretending to sing opera. I mean, I was very bizarre. So they had they had it was it was hard being my parents. And then. Yeah. When I was in college and I was an art student and I was making all these strange things, I had a sculpture class and I was making things out of foam and time. And they they were all sort of bulbous and very sensuous. And OK, they were a little sexy and I would bring them home and um, my parents wouldn't know what to do with them. <laughs> and so I would find them out on the curb on garbage day, but they would be all wrapped up. So nobody knew what they were. <laughs> right? They would, be, <laughs> they would be wrapped in a quilt or something. They were so even they embarrassed to throw them yeah. out. I love yeah. that story. <laughs> I love that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I think it is difficult for parents really to imagine, you know, artists are the same, I guess, writers are the same because, I mean, you know, I don't know what it's like in the US, but the average salary for a writer in Australia is still $12,000 per annum. You know, that's a pretty good salary because yeah, it is wow. hard to get published. Yeah. I mean, a 12000 when I was writing romance, I was probably making something like that. Um, yeah. And um, and we were, you know, just ecstatic with that because I was getting paid something. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, there are writing is you have to really want to do it. You have yeah. to, you know, it has to be a real part of your life. And I was lucky because I had a very supportive family when I got married, not necessarily my parents, my poor parents. I was mm. such a problem child. <laughs> I mean, when I finally started to write, you know, I, uh, when I, I wasn't published until I was 43. Yeah. Wow. So, which is hard to believe since I'm only 35 now. Yeah. Know? It's amazing how you've done that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Extraordinary. But, but that is interesting because you've published 42 novels. Wow. In that time. Yeah. It was, you know, it was the Mickey Spillane thing when they asked him, how often do you write a book? And he said, how bad do I need the money? 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of that sort of thing. Um, by the time I got published, I had a kid in college and, you know, we, and my husband was making an okay salary, but not, you know, we weren't rich. And so, you know, I was writing books, those little romance novels, I was writing three and four of them a year for a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, you know, just trying to keep my kids in college and our heads above water. And then, and then I made the movie sale. And that's what really changed our life. I mean, was that movie sale? What with the romance books? Talk to me about that. Um, no, well, well, I sort of got kicked out of romance, you know, because <laughs> I was the weird romance writer again. I mean, this is the story of my life. It's a good thing I'm such a success because otherwise I'd just be like, you know, that weirdo woman down the street. I was writing a romance. I, I think I did something like twelve romance novels. And I kept, um, I was their token humor writer. There wasn't a lot of humor back then. And they didn't really understand how romance could be funny. But I always thought sex was pretty funny anyway. Well, we won't even get into that here. And particularly writing about sex. It's funny. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I ran out of positions by about seven. I didn't know where I was going. It wasn't wasn't my thing. So, um, So at some point, I was not having a lot of success as a romance writer. People were buying my books, but the publisher didn't really know what to do with them. I was putting little mysteries in and they were taking the mysteries out. And so um, I took a year off and decided to go into um, crime fiction. And that was when I created the Plum series. Mm. And that really is what made the difference in my career because TriStar picked it up and paid me a ton of money. I got a million dollars for that. Yeah, I mean, wow. I wow. am the American dream. Uh, you know, it was when my agent called and said, the movies want your book. They're giving you a million dollars. I mean, I looked out. It was it was at night because I'm on the East Coast. They're on the way, you know, time change. I looked out and on my front lawn were all the shingles off of our roof glittering in the moonlight because we'd had this bad storm and they all blew off and we couldn't afford a new roof. <laughs> and wow. So I'm a millionaire now and I'm looking out at, at all the shingles laying there. I could not stop smiling. I, I smiled. They, they told me I was smiling in my sleep. Yeah. I, I, I smiled like my face hurt and yeah. I went out shopping the next day. And did you call the rooftop guy? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we ended up selling the house. We <laughs> sold that, that sucker house. And, um, but I went out shopping the next day and, you know, I couldn't spend any money. No. I mean, when you clip coupons and, you know, I would go to the grocery store and, you know, all the items are on the belt and you get to the cashier and you're counting them up and you're realizing you're short, like $2 and you have to put a couple cans of tomato soup back. You know, I mean, that was sort of where I was at. And then, and then I have a million dollars. So I, I went to the shopping center and I couldn't bring myself, I, I couldn't buy anything. I wasn't used to buying anything. I ended up getting towels. Yeah, that was well, my first luxury. Very sensible. Yes, yes, because yes. all of my towels, you know, after you wash them enough, they have those strings hanging down. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I got myself some new towels. Okay, I'm just thinking if I were to get a million dollars, would towels be my first purchase? Not sure about that. Maybe a dress. <laughs> I bought a car after that. Oh, good. That's practical <laughs> yeah, too. It took me a couple of days, but I, <laughs> I got into it. 
Okay, I want to talk about Stephanie because she was ahead of her time, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, I think she was. Um, Or maybe she was a product of her time. You know, I looked at the other um, women writing romance because women were just starting to come into their own in crime fiction. Sue Grafton um, had the hard-boiled woman detective. Up to that point, you know, it was romance and it was cozies and it was a whole different thing. But then it was Sarah Paretsky and Sue Grafton. And I was looking at this product and I thought, I can't compete with these women. They're doing what they do. They're doing so well. But I realized that there was this blooming market out there for it. And so I thought what I can do is I can do the kind of heroine that I would be. I can do the woman that I know, the woman who knows nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I said, she can't be a cop. She can't be a detective. I don't know how to do any of those things. And I was watching Midnight Run with Robert De Niro and um, Charles Grodin, and they were bounty hunters. And I thought that that's it. That's what I can do because they can wear what they want. They have their own hours. It seemed very freewheeling. And um, so that was um, what I gave to Stephanie Plum. And it's believable because it is you. Like, you know, because sometimes you think, well, that can't happen, but it is happening. It is. And so I put a lot of myself in Stephanie. I mean, she, yeah. I'm, I'm not Stephanie, that's for certain, but she has some of my history. And when I came up against a situation, because of the way I created her, I could say to myself, what would I do? So in book number one, when she's being attacked by this horrible guy, this wrestler guy, she's got a gun in her purse. Now, I mean, I'm not a gun person. She isn't a gun person, but but she's been given a gun. She's got it in her purse and he's attacking her. And instead of taking the gun out and shooting him, she hits him over the head with her handbag that has the gun in it. Okay. That's what I would do. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's what I would do. Uh, And so, you know, and to this day, I continue that through the series. It's okay. What would my emotion be? Where, you know, what would I be thinking if I was in this situation? Yeah, she's gutsy. So how did the first one get published? So how did you transition from romance to writing uh, mystery in a way? And how did you convince your publisher that that's what you wanted to do? Because that's not easy either. People get pigeonholed. Yeah, well, I don't. they didn't really know what they were buying. Yeah. Um, I sold that first book to Scribner, which was a mystery right. house. And um, I had a wonderful editor, wonderful mystery editor. And so I sold the book on a partial. I didn't have an agent, but I sent them a query letter um, and they asked for some of the book and I sent them a partial of the manuscript and they liked the idea, you know, of the bounty hunter. Yeah. And they gave me a contract for $7,000. And when the book went into them, I don't think they, they, they were like confused because, you know, it starts off with Stephanie playing choo-choo <laughs> um, with this little boy. And I and then, you know, it gets kind of sexy and then it gets a little funny. You know, there's the grandma um, shooting the gumpy off the chicken. And so they um, it was supposed to come out in hardcover, but they brought it out initially in a reduced format. It was, you know, not the size of an American hardcover. It was a small little hardcover. And I think I think we call them demis here. 
Yeah. And yeah. I think it was supposed to have a print run of, I don't know, 14 or something. I mean, it wasn't even before that book um, was printed, I sold to the movies. Yeah. Wow. And so. So your agent did that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, yes, because as soon as um, because I had an agent at that point. Yes. Yeah. I didn't have an agent when I was selling my romances. After I sold the rom- a couple of romances, I was able to get an agent. So then when I had when I switched over to Plum, I did have an agent for that one. And that's why I was able to sell it on a partial. But when I handed it in, they were they were just confused. But before it was even printed, my agent had sent it out to the West Coast and there was a big bidding war for it. And 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 then when it turned out it was worth a million dollars to TriStar, um, Scrivener suddenly decided it had to be much better than they thought. And so they um, rearranged it and they brought it out in regular format. Um, but still, you know, I mean... It, it was not a big sale. I think, I think my first print run was, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred copies, yeah. um, which was only bought by my relatives. Thought <laughs> <laughs> your family and your extended family. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it was a hard road. I mean, I, I had to really work hard building audience from that. And it wasn't until um, the third and fourth book that I started to actually have some sales. And it wasn't until what the seventh book that I made number one on the times. Yeah. Well, extraordinary. And then you ended up being a contemporary to Sue Grafton. I mean, you know, it was like me working on the shop floor. If somebody had read a Sue, Sue Grafton, I would then recommend a Janet Ivanovich, you know, that you ended up being somebody that you admired. You ended up being one of in that group. Yes. And I would meet her sometimes like at mystery conferences and things. And I would be so in awe of her yeah. that I, I couldn't speak. I would be like, like just gobsmacked. You know, I would be one of those people like hiding behind the potted palm, looking at, you know, Sue Grafton and Sarah Presky and you know, <laughs> mostly because I wanted to see what they would wear and what kind of earrings did they have? That's on. called stalking. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was a stalker. I was. Yes. I've been a stalker. I stalk authors as well. So I know exactly how you feel. We're out of time, Janet. Um, It's just been such a wonderful conversation and I feel so happy to have learned so much about you. You still write with the same passion, the same energy, I think, um, as your first book. Do you feel that? Do you feel that the stories in you are still there and they're still strong and you're still loving it? Well, when I've got the Cheetos and the wine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. As long as they're still making Cheetos, you'll be writing. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you. It's been fun. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, 
and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.